Module seven: The obstacle is the way. Welcome back. How's the curiosity practice going? We've been talking a lot about pain and suffering in this course. Yes, it can be painful to be exposed to or take on so much of other suffering. It can also be painful to learn that we might have formed a few unhealthy coping habits of our own. It can be painful when we look back at our interactions with others or our social media posts, flinching as we think, "Did I really say that?" Yes, those emotional contagion bugs are nasty and really infectious, and moods and attitudes become cancerous if allowed to grow unchecked. We go on autopilot, get caught up in negativity, cycle after cycle of self-judgment, worry, outrage, cynicism, or whatever. Hopefully, you're starting to recognize signs of these, so that you can get a shot of curiosity to build your mental immune system, bringing in kindness to outcompete those nasty little habits. Maybe you're already good at spreading curiosity and kindness to your patients, your colleagues, families, and communities. Are you ready for a little more pain? Going back to the first module, we explored how pain is painful, both for our patients and if we really empathize with them, for us as well. We also saw how this can be a catch twenty-two. We have to feel their pain to help them heal, but if we feel it too much, we get burnt out. In the second module, we explored how compassion helps us not take on other stories of suffering. We can be right there beside them in the flames without getting burned. Today, we'll explore some important elements of how our brains perceive pain, both our pain and others' pain, and how these can affect how we treat pain. This is really important because if we don't know how this works, it can lead to misdiagnosis and mistreatment. This just adds to the pain both for our patients and ourselves. So let's dive in. Before we begin, here's an important aside. I'm going to have you imagine a professor in a few moments. I would much rather that you imagine a female professor, given our long outdated notions of gender roles, especially in medicine. But I'm terrible at vocal impressions. So for the next part, think of a female physician with a unique-sounding voice, which is mine. Okay, let's go. Imagine being a medical student or a resident physician, or in some stage of your healthcare training. Your team is discussing how to treat a patient who's reporting post-operative pain. Your attending physician seizes the moment to attend to her duties as a professor and teach you about pain. She starts by giving you the following definition of pain. An unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage. Thank you very much, Professor. Sounds like you read that out of a textbook. That didn't tell me much more than what I already knew. And what about emotional pain? Doesn't that hurt too? Looking a little pained that this definition wasn't enough, your professor adds, "Well, pain is not only a sign of damage, but the result of complex interactions between biological, psychological, and sociocultural factors." You think to yourself, "Yeah, I already know this. Pain is complex. Teach me something new." You check in with yourself and notice how you might be coming down with an impatience bug. Maybe it's an old habit of yours. You remember from somewhere that curiosity is an antidote to impatience. You pause and lighten your tone of voice before asking your professor, "Hmm, can you explain the clinical relevance of what you just told me?" Perhaps you're even a bit surprised with yourself that genuine curiosity can actually be triggered by that silly vocal trick of "hmming" that you learned somewhere. Maybe even catching a little of your curiosity, your professor gets a glint in her eye. Right, this science stuff only matters if we can translate it into understandable language and show why it matters. So she starts asking you a few questions. She asks, "Did you know that pain can be influenced by mood or emotional state, both by the patient's and our own?" 
Before continuing, she looks to see if you have that tell me more look on your face. Tell me more, your face says. She smiles and continues. You have this thought. Oh, she's a smart one. She's spreading happiness via social contagion, which also helps with learning. You note that intrusive thought and it disappears. Damn, this noting stuff works, you think to yourself. You note that too and it disappears, leaving you more focused. She asks you, so how does mood or an emotional state affect pain? You give her an I don't know look. She continues, studies have shown, oh god, a lecture, you feel yourself closing down. You curiously note cynicism to yourself and open back up, ready to learn. Studies have shown that negative emotions increase the unpleasantness of pain, while positive emotions do the opposite. Did you also know that pain can be enhanced by cognitive fatigue or sleep deprivation? You think back to how painful it was to try to stay awake in grand rounds after being on call. Yep, I get it. Psychological distress, she continues, can worsen pain. Personal health beliefs and coping strategies can make pain worse or last longer. This can be compounded by anxiety. If you can't control your distress, or you start to worry that your pain isn't getting better or it's going to last a long time and so on, you might get more anxious, which then feeds back and makes the pain worse. She pauses, seeing that you're making connections in your brain, and then continues. Did you know that when pain becomes chronic, brain activity actually switches away from pain circuits to circuits that process emotions? That's why anxiety and other emotions take center stage when it comes to back pain and other chronic pain conditions. At that point, it isn't about point tenderness or the physical sensation of pain. It's about that protective flint, the worry, the fear of the future. So it's critical to target the mechanism and treat the root cause, whatever it is at that moment. Analgesics are only part of the story. We have to treat the whole human, body and mind. She elaborates. She says, here, for example, mindfulness-based stress reduction has been shown to change brain activity in these circuits. This makes sense because studies have shown that mindfulness-based stress reduction has been shown to help both chronic pain and anxiety. Stepping back from this scenario for a moment, as an aside, hopefully you can see that pain is complex. You might even notice how inadequate and shallowly one-dimensional the 1 to 10 pain rating system seems. To diagnose pain effectively, you have to keep in mind the body and the mind. The physical cause of pain is only part of the equation, and much less of the equation when pain moves from acute to chronic. You make a mental note to yourself. To treat pain effectively, you have to treat the whole human, the physical and the mental. Your professor saves the best for last. She summarizes. Okay, pain is subjective. Pain is influenced by mood and emotional states. Did you know that experiencing pain in the presence of others can influence your reaction to pain? She gives you an example, telling you how in one study, women reported a lower intensity of pain when a romantic partner was holding their hand. She mentioned something about physiological synchronization, where your physiology syncs up with the other. No wonder partners hold hands during childbirth. No wonder parents hold their kids' hands when they are undergoing painful medical procedures. Wow, you think. Another example of social contagion. Your professor sums it all up with this clinical pearl. She says, just remember this formula. Suffering equals pain times resistance. The more we resist pain by getting anxious, worrying, closing down, turning away from or otherwise trying to protect ourselves from that pain, the more we suffer. What you resist persists. This goes for physical and emotional pain. 
you try to make a note to yourself, suffering equals pain times resistance. That formula is pretty simple. And then your brain makes another connection. All of the times you've turned away from or resisted your patient's suffering, not only have they suffered, but you have suffered as well. All of the times you've ignored, turned away from, or shoved your own emotional pain into the closet for another day, you have suffered, and it might have made your patient suffer as well. The ever-patient professor sees that you're learning. She sees that you're connecting the dots. She sees that you're open to learning more. She knows that this is the time that she can bring up unpleasant and even painful subjects. She starts in gently. So hopefully you can see now that pain diagnosis and severity aren't straightforward. The perception of pain is influenced by the patient's genes, social conditioning, and even mental state at the time. When clinicians try to diagnose pain and determine how severe it is, we are influenced by our own conditioning and our own mind states at the time. We can even be influenced by emotional contagion, whether our patients or anyone else is in the room. All of these can bias us. She looks at you to see if you're still open and curious or if you've flinched or closed down with that last sentence. The word bias is painful for many people. For dark-skinned individuals who have suffered from racial bias for many generations, the layers of pain are obvious and run deep. For white-skinned individuals, the feeling of fragility, the wanting to not have socially conditioned biases in the first place, and so many other factors can make the subject pretty sensitive or feeling too hot to touch. Your wise and compassionate professor mentally holds your hand, knowing that the next thing she's about to say hurts for a lot of people. With a tender voice of kindness, she describes a 2016 study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, where half of a sample of white medical students and residents endorsed the belief that black people's skin is thicker than white people's skin. They also rated black patients' pain as lower and made less accurate treatment recommendations. Half of them in 2016. She described several other studies where black people are less likely to be prescribed pain medications. She then pointed out that this isn't simply racial and ethnic bias. A number of studies have found that female patients with acute coronary syndrome are less likely to get a diagnostic workup than men. In fact, a 2018 study, also published in PNAS, found that female patients who have an acute myocardial infarction and are treated by male physicians have higher mortality rates than either male or female patients treated by female physicians. What are these male physicians thinking? Well, another study showed that women are twice as likely as men to be diagnosed with a mental illness when their symptoms are consistent with heart disease. You have indigestion and discomfort in your neck radiating into your jaw? Lady, you're just being hysterical. Go see your shrink. Bringing this hypothetical discussion between you and your professor to an end, unfortunately, this type of bias-based misdiagnosis and maltreatment is common enough that it's now called medical gaslighting. It may take the term gaslighting a bit far, but you get the idea. For example, a New York Times article written in 2022 describes a woman, Jenny Rishi, who had intense chest pain that woke her up at night. Ms. Rishi flew from Los Angeles to a highly recommended cardiologist in the Midwest. Despite having a history of not one, but two congenital heart conditions, the doctor told her, people who have these heart conditions aren't this sick, end quote. Smartly, she got a second opinion, and after a proper diagnostic workup, tests revealed that her arteries were spasming. Oh, she needed open-heart surgery to correct the problem. She got the surgery, and it did correct the problem. Did I mention that Miss Rishi was black? 
Unfortunately, no matter what our skin color is, no matter what our gender identity is, we're all susceptible to social conditioning. Now, there's one more thing that's important to know because it affects how much we're influenced by our biases. Ready? A study done at the Veterans Affairs Healthcare System looked to see how much high cognitive loads, that is when we're juggling a lot, feeling rushed, stressed, anxious, and so on, can influence medical decision-making. In this study, the researchers had doctors read patient vignettes and found that high cognitive load affected the likelihood of prescribing opioids for pain in black versus white patients. Female physicians had a much narrower gap than male physicians, but the signal was pretty clear and fits with known science. When we're stressed, our prefrontal cortex goes offline, making it harder to think and make good decisions. That's when we fall back on habits or conditioning. You can do your own experiment here, no matter who your patients are. When are you at your best in diagnosing and treating your patients? When you've got a million things running through your head? When you're stressed or anxious? When your clinic is running away behind and you're wondering how you will possibly get back on schedule? In fact, we've all already replicated this experiment for ourselves, unfortunately too many times. All of these have direct impact on how we treat and how well we treat our patients. So I'm guessing whether it's bias or cognitive load or overload, all of these types of biases can affect pain perception and our medical decision-making. And I'm guessing this might have even gotten under your skin. Perhaps take a moment to feel the suffering of those who have experienced bias. Perhaps it was even you. Focus on the fact of suffering, not the story. Does it move you to want to relieve that suffering? If so, here's some good news. You already know how to do it. Since bias is conditioned, since it is learned, you can uncondition, you can unlearn it. Simply being aware of this is already a step forward. Bringing curiosity in so that you can be on the lookout for any little bias that you might have picked up through social conditioning can help you stop looking through any tinted glasses of what your patients look like. It can also help to make sure you're not acting based on what your own mental state is in the moment, whether you're anxious, exhausted, or otherwise. How about another clinical pearl, a tip that you can take to your clinic? Let's start with treating your patient's pain. For example, you can learn to notice when you flinch, jump to a conclusion, prejudge, make an assumption, dismiss, or do something else that makes it harder for you to listen carefully and rushes you to a diagnosis or a treatment recommendation. Noticing these habit loops helps you step out of them. It can be as quick as recognizing the mental pattern and taking a single deep breath. Here's a way to turbocharge this. Because stress and feeling rushed can be contagious, you can bet that your patients will feel these when you are feeling them. So when you notice that you're feeling rushed and so on, you can play with saying something like this to your patient. Hey, I'm noticing that this is a lot. I'm going to take a deep breath to let this all settle in. You can join me if you'd like. And like a little joining of the mental hands, you both can take a breath together. If you really want to throw caution to the wind and approach the bedside, as one of my surgery professors used to joke, you can play with admitting what you're feeling at the moment. For example, wow, I'm feeling a little anxious, stressed, rushed, overwhelmed, or whatever you're feeling. I'm going to take a deep breath. Care to join me? Vulnerability is strength, as Brene Brown says. Now, if you're a little nervous about giving this a try with your patients, practice opening up or being vulnerable with your spouse or your partner first. Go ahead, throw caution to the wind. 
you might be surprised by the results. Now let's extend this to your pain. Hopefully you got a sense of how treating pain is anything but formulaic. This is true for the medical field in general. Medicine is complicated. Medicine is messy. Yet when we learn to accept and even embrace the uncertainty, when we turn toward the pain instead of running away from it, when we admit that we're stressed out, something amazing happens. The obstacle becomes the way. Yes, the obstacle becomes the way. We learn how our minds work. And then we learn that we can work with our minds instead of fighting against them. And this opens us to what we love about our jobs and our profession, helping people. When we set the healthy habits of curiosity and kindness, we open to our patients, we open to ourselves, we open to our families and our lives. This is when our patients, our families, and we thrive. So take a moment to take a moment when you're getting caught up today. It could be an empathy protection habit loop. It could be anxiety. It could be fear. It could be pain, physical or emotional. Whatever it is, take a deep breath, maybe even take a breath together with your patient so you can both get grounded. See how much this can help you step out of these old habit loops and into compassionate action. In the next module, I'll briefly review each of the modules from this mini course so that you can practice putting all of the pieces together. You can also download a summary document with each of the practices here. Onward, we'll see you in the next module.